Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. So continue the story of Jesus on this earth, the Messiah, born and lived and then died. The first two chapters about, are about baby Jesus, but in chapter 3 we get to grown-up Jesus. Uh, so it's about 30 years later. So we ended last week with Jesus coming back from Egypt, persecuted, and we start this week with his cousin, John, as a grown man. The thing about God is that he doesn't let you do what you want. He doesn't let things just happen on their own as people see fit. So when we get to this passage, what we're going to see is God's kingdom is disruptive, which is not what people want. We do not want to be disturbed. Have you seen hotels with do not disturb signs? That's our lives. Leave me alone. And God says no. And this passage is exactly a story of someone coming from God and telling everyone, I don't care that you have a do not disturb sign. I'm here to make changes. It's a disruptive kingdom. So remember, Jesus is the king. And so far, it's been Jesus himself, born in a manger. Wise men come to see him, travels to Egypt. It's just Jesus doing these things. But in this chapter, we're going to see the kingdom arriving and calling all of us to respond to it. What's it look like to respond to Jesus? What happens when the kingdom actually comes to the earth? So this passage, we're going to see three things. It introduces a character named John the Baptist. Uh, who is he? Who is this guy? Uh, what was he doing? And then what did he say Jesus was going to do? So John the Baptist, who, he, who is he? What did he do? And what did he say Jesus was going to do? So look in chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the regions around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather up his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Who is this guy? He just shows up. And it's interesting because the people would have had the same reaction. He just shows up. 
Now, we know from another place, this is, this is Jesus' cousin. Uh, he's about 30 years old. But it's one of the weirdest characters in the Bible, isn't it? He's not your normal preacher, pastor, religious leader. He's not even like Jesus. When you read about Jesus, he was kind of normal in one sense. He went to parties. He had friends. He traveled around. He went to the synagogue. He pretty much behaved in a good way, like the people around him. Not John the Baptist. And that's significant. Now, his name is John the Baptist not because he was a Baptist, as much as we like for him to be a Baptist like us. Not the same thing. Uh, all Christians everywhere baptize, not just Baptist. So it really means John the Baptizer. But what was unique about it? So look, at in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. Now, if you had to pick a place to preach, what would it be? The place where no one is? The place where it's hot? The place where there's no chairs to sit in? The wilderness in this time, that's where... So you have the towns where everybody lives, and they sort of cultivate, and they make roads, and they drive out animals. But if you drive animals out of the town, where do they go? They go to the wilderness. So you have a pack of wolves, you drive them out of town, you run them off, and they go live in the wilderness. This is where John is. So it was, it was believed at this time, it was, it was common to understand the wilderness was where wild animals and demons lived. It wasn't so much that there was no water there, because we think of wilderness as sort of no water. It's more of just uncivilized, uninhabited, and dangerous. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. John the Baptist is radical. The man that's sent to introduce Jesus does the opposite of what, he, what normal people do. He goes out to the wilderness to make a point. John the Baptist was sort of a drama queen. He didn't just preach the truth. He said, I'm going to preach the truth in a way that just creates a lot of drama and makes a huge point. So he doesn't show up to the synagogue to preach. He goes out in the middle of the wilderness to preach. What's his point? Well, do you remember the last time? The wilderness is not, this is not the first time the wilderness shows up in the Bible. Remember when it first showed up back in Exodus? Children of Israel, captive in Egypt. Moses leads them out across the Red Sea into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they go to Mount Sinai, and it's in the wilderness that God meets with them, gives them the Ten Commandments, creates the nation of Israel. When God creates his people, he created them in the wilderness. Now we have this guy showing back up in the wilderness. What's he talking about? Well, just the fact that he's in the wilderness makes you think, is he like Moses? Is he like the other prophets who were kicked out of town? But then look what he's wearing. He's in the wilderness. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Anybody have a camel hair jacket? Yeah, I prefer not to wear animal skins. Now, when it says camel's hair, it means he hadn't, you know, we all have leather, right? Leather things are nice. It wasn't leather like that. It still had the hair on it. So it was about the roughest material you could find. 
bound about with a leather belt. And then what's he eating? And his food was locust and wild honey. Locusts are exactly what you think they are. A giant bug. Like a grasshopper. It's like that big. Uh, I know my kids have eaten locusts, dried locusts, but I never have and never plan to. But they're a good source of protein. And then wild honey. Okay, wild honey, that's, that's a little bit easier. Why doesn't he eat regular food? What's the point here? Why is he wearing this really rough garment and eating this crazy food? Because he's making a point. You see, the thing about locusts and wild honey is that you don't work for it. You don't cultivate it. You don't buy it. You find it. It's what you would eat if you were poor. So a poor person doesn't have fields. They go out in the woods and they find a cave and they get the honey out of it. Locusts descend and they eat the locusts. So what's John doing? He's saying, I'm not like all of your leaders who live in houses, who have nice clothes, who have nice meals. I live in the wilderness. I wear animal skins and I eat stuff out of rocks. That's who God chose to introduce him. Not the kind of person we'd expect. Someone who, who said, I'm going to choose to be different than what you want. Who wants to live in the wilderness? Who wants to eat locusts and wild honey? Who wants to wear animal skins? Nobody wants those things. So why did John wear them? He's disrupting their lives. See, everyone came out in the wilderness to see him. What is his point here? What's the drama about? It's saying you can't continue the way you are. I'm here to shock you out of this sort of numbness. That's what he is. He's a prophet. It was he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. When we're going through Malachi, the last chapter of Malachi, the last verse of Malachi, what did it say? Excuse me. These are actually not my notes. See anybody sees a copy of my notes laying around? I could use them. Oh, here they are. Nope. Same thing. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says, in verse 4 it says, Obey the law of Moses. In verse 5 it says, I will send Elijah, Elisha to you. That's the last verses of the Old Testament. So for 400 years, what are they looking for? What are they waiting for? Elisha. Here's the interesting thing. Do you know what Elisha wore? You know what his outfit looked like? Animal skins with a leather belt. In fact, in 2 Kings, Elisha comes to see the king, and they go to the king and say, there's a man out there. He's looking for you. And he's wearing a hairy garment and a leather belt. And the king goes, that's Elisha. He knew him by his outfit. Here we have the same outfit. What's John the Baptist doing? He's saying, I'm that prophet that you've been waiting 400 years for. That's what it says. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him. Why would you go out in the middle of nowhere to listen to this crazy man? Why were they out there? Everyone was out there. They had to get out of their houses, walk out to the desert, prepare lunch, prepare food, make plans, get off work to listen to this 
weirdo. Why? Because he was a prophet. And what do prophets do? They either tell you that things are going to be different, or they tell you that things are bad. John has showed up after 400 years to say everything the Old Testament was talking about is what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. No one had ever said that before. See, that's what we, we don't really get the impact of that. The whole Old Testament, six, 37 books, no one had ever said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now John shows up to say everything's different now. Everything's going to change. It's a new world because outside this world, heaven, that's why it's called the kingdom of heaven, it's outside this world, is coming into this world. So nothing can stay the same. So he shocks them out of their comfort by wearing strange clothes, by identifying with Elijah, by eating weird food, by living in a weird place. What's this tell us? You're not going to change on your own. You're going to be the same person you are today, tomorrow, unless something different happens to you. You're going to continue day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, exactly the same, unless something outside disrupts it. Have you felt that? You look back over a certain amount of time, you thought, nothing's, nothing's changed. Everything's the same. I've not grown, I've not progressed, nothing's gotten better, it's just the same. This is showing us that in order for people to change, something radical has to happen to them. It doesn't come from within them. It happens to them. Do you want to change? Do you want something to change in your life? Do you want it to be different? You can't make it happen. Somebody or something has to come to you to disrupt your life. So what did John the Baptist do? That's who he was. He was a prophet. He was a crazy prophet. He was a radical prophet. What did he do when he got there? Well, he's John the Baptist. He baptized people. Now, baptism wasn't new at this time. And it meant the same thing. You know, you've seen someone here baptized. You immerse them in water. You bring them back up. Same thing happened back then. But the only people that got baptized were non-Jewish converts. So let's say you were from Germany or from Rome and you want to become a Jew. You weren't born into it. You weren't a child of Abraham. So they would baptize you into the Jewish faith. So everyone understood that baptism was sort of this radical change where you identified, you switched identities. So here's John the Baptist. And who's he baptizing? Not Gentiles. He's baptizing the children of Abraham. See how radical that is? Up until this point, the only people who were baptized were the outsiders. John shows up and says, nope, insiders need to be baptized. The people who thought they were already inside are not. So he has a baptism of repentance. First thing he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first thing John shows up and says to the people of God is, you're not doing the right thing. Your life is wrong. The direction you're headed is wrong. Now, who likes to hear that? Is that why you like people to come into your life and tell you right off the bat, hey, my name's John, the Baptist. Everything you're doing is wrong. What's our reaction? It's never a good reaction, is it? But remember what we said before, you don't change unless something disrupts you? 
here's the disruptor. Here's someone who comes in and says, do you want to be the same or do you want to be better? So he tells them, in order for you to be different, you've got to turn from the way you're going. You have to get a new identity, a baptism. You have to wake up. Human nature and the world we live in wants to put you to sleep. And I don't mean in the sense of just relaxed and quiet. I mean numbed, distracted, unable to be aware of what's going on. How's that happen? Well, look at your life. What's distracting you? What bothers you? What are you fighting back against? What are you resisting? We don't want things to change, but we do want things to change. So we don't want things to be the same, we want them to be better, but only on certain terms. We want change as long as it's our change. He says to them, you're too asleep to know what you need. You're too numbed by this world. He was a prophet crying in the wilderness. Why do you yell? Why do you raise your voice to get people's attention? You ever had kids you have to wake up or teenagers? You can't talk to them. You have to raise your voice at them. God is telling us that people tend towards sleep. Not just any people, God's own people. How does this apply to us? We live in a country and in a community and in a culture that's it's never been easier to go to sleep. We live in suburbia. You know what suburbia is designed to do? By its very nature, it's designed to make your life more comfortable. That's the point of it. You left crowded city life with its crime and with its sort of oppressive environments to go to somewhere that's more open and relaxed and comfortable, right? You left the country because there wasn't enough there to do or there wasn't work, and you went to suburban areas so you could have a house and a job and live comfortably. That's the point of suburbia. Guess where this church is situated? In the place where it's the most conducive to go to sleep, to just be busy all the time, but never aware. To be constantly doing things, but never really challenged. Now, it's not that you don't have problems. It's not that you don't have anything wrong in your life. It's that your goal is to relax and not do anything. That's the goal. John the Baptist says you need to leave and go to the wilderness. Don't you want to be different? Yeah, we want to be different and comfortable. We want to be different and safe. John Baptist says you can't have it both ways. You can't be different by doing the same thing. You can't be different by being lulled to sleep. And what we've done with suburbs is we've cut ourselves off from everybody who would disrupt us. We live in communities, we live in houses that are isolated so that we won't be bothered. An Iranian couple, you know there's a revival in Iran? Iran's a terrible place to live. It's oppressive. There's no religious liberty. There's no freedom of speech. They're at war with multiple countries. But there's a revival happening. A revival that's not happening in America. 
An Iranian couple moved to America recently. And in a documentary, they said, after a few months of being here, they said, we're moving back to Iran. Now tell me, who moves to Iran? I've been close to Iran. I know what Iran's like. It's not a place you want to live. Why would they move back? The wife said to her husband, there's a satanic lullaby in America that's putting everyone to sleep, and I feel sleepy too. She said, we need to wake up and go to where you can't go to sleep. But that requires that you leave comfort, and no one wants to do that. So you have a prophet show up who says, unless you get out of your comfort zone, you'll do nothing and you'll be the same. It gets to the point where we say, a revival in Iran, that sounds great, but I'd rather be comfortable. We'd like to see church growth, sure, but at what expense? Would you leave your house and go into the wilderness if God would meet you there? That's not a hypothetical question. That's a real question. What are you willing to leave behind right now to see God work? I think the answer is not much. Not much. You've got enough problems, don't you? You've got enough problems with your kids, with your work, with your health, with your house, with school. Why would you add more problems to it? Why put more problems on top of things? But you know, when John the Baptist came to these people, they were not living the best life they could ever live. Why did he tell them to repent? They were already poor. They were already under the yoke of another government. See, we tell ourselves, because we have problems, we're okay. Our life's not perfect. We don't have the best life. we got health problems. We have kid problems. We have work problems. So therefore, we don't need to do anything. God is saying to you, unless you leave the comfort and go into the wilderness, you're stuck. God won't work with people who desire comfort. He'll only work with people who will disrupt and receive disruption. Look what John the Baptist does. And, and they came out baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins, a radical transformation in their lives. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, Pharisees and Sadducees didn't hang out together. They hated each other. The only thing they hated more than each other was God. So they ended up working together for the sole purpose of silencing God. So never assume that people who hate each other can't work together when they have mutual enemies. They show up to his baptism. Isn't that great? God's working here, isn't he? No. It's hypocrisy. John the Baptist, think how this would work in our church. Christians, they call themselves Christians, they come into our church and they say, we want to follow God. And I say to them, brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? People are like, oh, no. Don't talk to people like that. Well, generally, you shouldn't talk to people like that unless they have a proven track record of being anti-God. See, he doesn't just confront everybody. He confronts them specifically. Why did he single them out? Do you notice that? He doesn't confront the other people. Why does he confront them? Because here sin was most entrenched and most deceptive. The Pharisees thought they were okay. And he tells them, you're not just not okay. You're worse than everybody else. 
What's God saying to us? Do you feel like you're okay? Are you sure you're not a brood of vipers? I don't know. I'm not a prophet like John was. But God knows, and you know. The question is, will you confront it? Will you confront the sin that John confronted? See, Pharisees and Sadducees, they love to be in the comfortable places. They love to wear nice clothes. They love to sit in the good seats in the temples. They love to be greeted in the, in the open markets. They love to live this nice life. And John the Baptist singles them out and says, because you're most comfortable, you are most dangerous. The more comfortable you are, combined with the more power you have, the more likely you are to be a brood of vipers. John's not trying to make any friends. He doesn't care. Why doesn't John care? He's already given everything up. What's he have to lose? He already lives in the wilderness. He doesn't have any nice clothes. He already eats weird food. What are these Pharisees going to take from him? You see what happens when you separate yourself from the comforts of this life? You're not afraid to lose them anymore. So much of what we do is designed to protect the kind of life we have. I can't let my kids do that. It's too dangerous. I can't do that at work. I might lose my job. I can't do this. I can't do that. I might lose something. But when you lose it already, like John did, then you can speak the truth. And so much of what we do is not speaking falsehood or lies. It's just protecting what we have. John didn't have to do that because he'd already given it up. But ultimately, John doesn't show up to just yell at people. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to leave from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. You see, everyone's got a story they're telling themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's bad, but, but you fill in the blank. Or let the Holy Spirit fill in the blank. Yeah, I know we should do more, but. I know we should be radical like John, but. The Pharisees said, but we're children of Abraham. And so John said, who cares? Who cares about your reasons, your justifications? The real question is, what does God say? And so he continues, and he points into something new. You see, when you repent from something, you have to turn to something. We repent from one thing and turn to something equally bad. We repent from being selfish and worshiping ourselves, and then we worship family. We repent from work and worship comfort. We repent from being out of the church and turn and worship church life. What does John point to? He says, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The only way to change is to have someone come into your life and point you to Jesus. Does that sound trite, sort of formulaic? Like, oh, of course, Jesus. That's only because you don't see Jesus the way John sees him. What did John say? He who is coming after me is mightier than I. Well, everyone knew that. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Do you have that view of yourself? You're not even good enough to carry the shoes of somebody? That's a pretty low view of yourself, isn't it? Or it's a high view of Jesus. See, what we've done is we've integrated Jesus into our lives. 
right? Sunday mornings for Jesus. Maybe Wednesday night, maybe Sunday night. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll do something special. John is saying, everything in my life is so worthless that it's not even worth carrying the sandals of Jesus. I'm not saying be like John, because we can't. The Bible's not saying be like John. It's saying wake up and see how subdued and quiet your life is. That's John's purpose here, is to shock us. It only happens through the Holy Spirit, but someone's got to come into your life and tell you everything's not okay. And you need someone outside of your life to fix it. And it's not John the Baptist. It's not the preacher. It's not the church. It's not a new job. There's only one person who's good enough and strong enough to actually fix your life. That's Jesus. So John humbles himself and says, he who's coming after me actually is going to change you. So he points to the king. Remember Jesus was the king? Kings are great. Kings are powerful. And so so John points to Jesus. Isn't that the problem we have with our Christianity? It doesn't point to Jesus. It points to Bible reading or Sunday school or church or morals. It never really gets around to Jesus. It's like, oh yeah, no, we love Jesus. He's great. But we need to focus on these practical things. We need to be, you know, more realistic about life, not just talk about Jesus all the time. But he will baptize you with hope, the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, things that will actually change you. Do you know what getting baptized does to you? Nothing. Do you know that? You went into the water, you came up. You know what coming to church actually does to you? Not much. They're all external things. I know we feel good about them, but they don't actually do anything to us. What Jesus is saying, what, God, what John is saying, is there's someone who can actually change you in a real way, not in a superficial way, with the Holy Spirit and fire. So that's John, merely a signpost to shake you up, wake you up, point you to somebody else. What is Jesus actually going to do? See, John didn't change anybody. You know what ended up happening to John? They cut his head off. Because you confront people enough, and they get tired of it. And you confront the wrong people, and they get rid of you. So he was just sort of another prophet that spoke the truth and got killed. But when we get to Jesus, it's different. What will Jesus do? And this passage is just as disruptive as John. Because when we think of Jesus, what do we think of? The loving Savior who came to rescue people, right? But look how he describes him. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. Who's cleaning out whose threshing floor? Jesus is cleaning out his kingdom and gathering up his wheat into the barn, but he, Jesus, will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What? Jesus was supposed to be my friend. Here he is burning people up. So, so the concept here is when you would make, when you would harvest wheat, you bring it into a flat place and you take a big fan to create wind and you throw it up in the air and the, the wheat would fall down, but the chaff, the sort of the husk around it would get blown away. So you gather up the wheat, put it in your barn, you take the chaff that got blown away and you, you burn it. What else would you do with it? It's worthless. That's the comparison he's making. John is saying when Jesus shows up, when, when his kingdom arrives, 
What's he going to do? Well, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to show you exactly who the Pharisees are and who they aren't. The hardest thing about Pharisees is you can't tell who they are. They look like good people. Everybody puts on this show, and no one can tell past. No, no one can tell what's actually going on. Do you ever feel like that? You're either putting on the show yourself, or you feel like everybody else is. So Jesus shows up, and he says, "He will lay the axe to the root of the tree. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He will judge who's in the kingdom and who's out." The kingdom of heaven come to earth. Who's in, who's out? Jesus will decide. Who gets destroyed? You see, this is, a, this is a place where you have to ask yourself, is Jesus real? Is he a real person? Because if he's not a real person, then this passage is pointless. It's meaningless. It's a nice story. It doesn't matter. If he's real, then at some point, Jesus is going to separate people, and the people that ended up outside the kingdom will be destroyed. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. How is that loving? Doesn't God love people? Why would he want to burn them up? Why would he want to kill them? We have to understand that there's evil in this world. Evil is destructive. Evil hurts people. Evil wants to destroy the world. And if you are on the side of evil, you want to destroy the world. So what God is saying here is he's come to fix all the problems, get rid of rotten fruit, trees that produce evil, burn them up, set the world right. And if you're on the side of evil, you go with evil. So is this world broken? Don't you want to see cancer eradicated? Don't you want to see poverty eradicated? Don't you want to see broken relationships and and damage to the world and hurricanes and tornadoes? Don't you want to see them go away? Well, the only way they're going to go away is if, they're, is if the world itself is removed. That's what God promises to do. But here's the thing he's saying to them. If you choose to cling to the world that's going to be destroyed, you'll be destroyed with it. God's not forcing people into hell. He's not forcing people to be burned. He's saying, I'm going to destroy evil. If you cling to evil... You'll be destroyed with it. He is a loving God. How do we know he's a loving God? Because he warned us. It's not just going to happen one day and surprise everybody. When you cling to evil, you get what evil gets, destruction. So we don't preach against hell because God is mad at everybody and wants to hurt everybody. We preach against hell as a warning from God to avoid it. You don't have to be burned up. God does not want to burn people up. He wants to get rid of evil. And so as people cling to this world, and what's it look like to cling to this world? What is this world? Money, comfort, houses, education. Are you clinging to those things? Those aren't bad things, but they're not the kingdom of heaven. So the tighter you cling to the things of this world, the harder it is for you to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's why it's so dangerous to be a comfortable church. Because it's so easy to focus on all these nice, good things in this world and forget that they're all going to be burned up, that they're all broken at the core. So the prophet warns us, turn from the world, repent, turn to Christ. The one thing that's going to make it out of this world. 
I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. God's going to destroy all evil and all evil people. He's going to burn them up. That's what the Bible says. You don't have to like it, but it's what it says. No one wants that end for themselves, do they? So how do you avoid it? How do you purge out the evil inside of you? How do you purge out the selfishness? How do you reach down your own heart and pull out that desire just to relax and be happy and comfortable all the time? You can't, can you? So that means that if you can't get it out, God will destroy it. So how do we get rid of the sin without being burned up with it? How do we rebel against God our whole lives and then end up in the kingdom of heaven? How do we live a life of selfishness and pride and then end up getting rewarded? Because that's what we want, isn't it? That's what, actually, that's what has to happen because we've already lived the life, haven't we? We've already been prideful. We've already been sinful. We've already buried ourselves into this world so deeply that the thought of letting go of some things is unthinkable. So what happens? He will burn up the chaff with the unquishable fire, but only after he's burned up. You see, John's talking about the very end, but something else is going to happen before the very end. God's going to transform repentant sinners into holy people. How? By being destroyed for them. This is the good news. The bad news is everyone who's done bad things will be burned up. The good news is Jesus got burned up for you. Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our sins. He bore the penalty for what we had done so that we could have peace with God. That's the only way out of this world alive. You've already done too many bad things to get out on your own merit. But you can get out. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven, leave the kingdom of this world, by putting all your bad things on Jesus. Just say, Jesus, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm crooked. I've done a terrible... But now they're on you. And when they're on Jesus, he gets burned up. He gets crushed. Not metaphorically, literally. What's judgment look like? Look at Jesus dying on the cross, beaten, bloodied, crushed. That's the end for all who reject God, and yet Christ himself was rejected. He who had no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Do you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? Turn from everything that's not the kingdom of heaven, everything in this world, and turn to the one person who actually suffered for you. The one person in this whole universe who actually paid for you. That's the way out. God's power to transform people has already showed up. Jesus has already showed up. Now choose which kingdom you're going to identify with. The kingdom of this world with its comfort, with its distractions, or the kingdom of heaven where you may lose everything. You may live in the wilderness with no food, but 
you'll have the king. So if you believe that Jesus is the king and that one day he will set things right, you can put up with the rest of it, can't you? So if you're not willing to give up anything for Jesus, it's simply because you don't think he's actually the king and that you are betting that this world will make you happy. You're putting money on both sides. Put a little bit of money on Jesus and a little bit of money on this world. That way, whatever happens, it'll work out. But the people that do that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who show up to be baptized while retaining the kingdom of this world, die with this world. The people who follow Jesus put all their money into the kingdom of heaven, which really means Jesus, because that's all you can see of the kingdom of heaven, isn't it? Just this one guy. Everything else looks like the world, except for Jesus. So you put all your money on Jesus, put all your faith in him, all your trust in him, that one day he's going to make everything right. And you'll find out if that's true or not after you die. You see what faith means? It means putting all your eggs in one basket. It means being willing to give up everything. It means being willing to move this church to any place in this world that can see change. You willing to do that? Are you going to hold on to a little bit? The more you hold on to this world, the more will be torn away from you. The more you give to Jesus, the more you'll see change. Let's pray.